head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid. Featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Johan, welcome to the Watch Podcast. It's Chris Ryan, and I'm joined by Andy Greenwald. You're overdoing it. You're overdoing it. I am overdoing it. We're doing the Watch Podcast. I was trying to do it in my Philly accent, which is long forgotten out here in beautiful Los Angeles. It's Monday, and I'm here with Andy, and we're going to talk about some TV shows. Andy, it's great to see you, man. Boy, it's great to see you. You are very positive today. You're coming into this Monday with the right kind of energy. Yeah, well, you know, I think that we obviously got a chance to see Mayor of Easttown uh, a couple of weeks back. It's the screeners and everything, and I, I but I only watched two, so I'm, I didn't want to get too far ahead of myself. I wanted to experience it with everybody. I just love having TV in my life. I love having a great Sunday night show that we can tuck into on a Monday. I love... I'm just, I'm just really into HBO dramas. What do you want me to say? <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. You're a simple man. You like butter on your popcorn. You like prestige dramas on HBO on Sunday nights. And that's the end of it, as far as I remember from Boogie Nights. That's the whole quote. How I know. Weekend, buddy? Uh, it was pretty good. Uh, you know, I got a chance to see you. We got to have some dinner outdoors. That was mm-hmm. lovely. Um, and... Mm-hmm. What else happened? Oh, uh, I watched. I'm trying to catch up on any Oscar movies that I haven't seen so far. So I uh, got a chance to check out Minari, which I was uh, derelict on watching and just thought was a wonderful, beautiful movie that really made me feel human emotions for the first time in a while. That was fantastic. I think that's where you're at. And I'm, I'm sort of vibing with it, too, which is to say that, you know, we're we're coming out of a dark season. We're coming out of a long, isolated period. And clearly it's not over yet. But Little things mean a lot. And not to say that Mare of Easttown and, and Minari are little things or that they have anything in common other than the fact that, to your point, they're just very compelling, deeply human works of entertainment, if not art. And I was very happy to have both in my life as well, particularly the movie. I also, it is no surprise that I'm derelict in all areas regarding contemporary cinema. <laughs> Although I did see Oscar nominee uh, Borat 2 the week it came out. So <laughs> That's I mean, true. You did. I'm not, I'm not a total you, slob over and here. And you're, you're up on Coming to America, which leads the best picture race for 2021. It could. It could yeah. well. I mean, anything's on, on the table these days. But just wanted to, yeah, to, to echo what you were saying, uh, Minari is available to be rented, right, at the moment, and probably is in some theaters. Mm-hmm. Really, 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 really highly recommend this film. It is 
beautiful. And it's beautiful in two ways. I think we could spend however much time we want to spend talking about it, talking about just the, 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 the precision and emotion of the script and the incredible performances. But I do want to just start by saying the thing that was, the lead that was buried in the coverage of the film is that Lee Isaac Chung, who wrote and directed it, directed the S out of it. It is gorgeous, gorgeous movie. And for those who don't know, it is about a family of uh, a couple who are Korean immigrants with their two American children who move at the beginning of the film from California, where they have been struggling to make ends meet as chicken sexers, which actually was Chris's second choice after becoming a podcast maven. Because he figured if he could get in with the chicken early, he could develop it and develop its flavor profile throughout <laughs> Do, its life. Let me tell you, there's one moment in Minari where uh, they dip the chickens into the water to, to like kind of make the process go faster. Do you ever notice mm. that? And I was like, look, if you ever need to talk to somebody about dipping chicken in water. <laughs> I mean, maybe the chicken, it, maybe the problem was before you got to it. You know what I mean? Like maybe early on, they dipped the chicken in water and thus doomed it to a <laughs> it life retained, of moistness. It retained it. Yeah. yeah, it never recovered. And they moved to extremely rural Arkansas, uh, where the father is played by Stephen Young from Burning or The Walking Dead. Actually, he was from both, but I meant or because you may know him from one or the other. Um, his a dream of, of starting a farm. And anyway, this is loosely based on Lee Isaac Chung's own life. Uh, they filmed it in... Uh, Oklahoma, I believe. And I mean, this is like Terrence Malick level sky, sun, grains and grasses territory. You know, Mm -hmm. it is just a truly absorbing watch just visually. And then you get into the other aspects of the film that I just thought were wonderful. Yeah, you know, I thought it's interesting that you bring this movie up in relation to the two shows that we're going to be talking about, because one of the things I wanted to chat about, broadly speaking today on the pod, is this idea of genre storytelling and Mm. how we choose to get what we need by watching what we want. You know, I mean, I think that we all go to television and movies because we know deep down at its best, not only can they entertain us, but that they can give us something nourishing and something educational about what it means to be a human being, right? Like, yeah. you know, that's why that's why we're ultimately doing this. Yeah, we want to laugh. Yeah, we want to be scared, whatever. Like, those are all, like, super uh, relevant reactions to have to things. And sometimes you just want that visceral experience. And, and, and those visceral experiences can also teach you a lot about yourself. But ultimately, like, you want to see some sort of reflection of um, your life on screen. And even if that happens in an episode of Falcon and Winter Soldier, or it happens in an episode of Mayor of Easttown, it kind of doesn't really matter what the window dressing is. It matters whether there's anything inside, right? And uh, sort of Minari is like the sort of the flip of that. Minari is is life on screen, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I actually found myself really responding to some of the deeper undercurrents of Minari rather than the um, sort of superficial, not superficial, but the on the surface text. It was more about like this idea of, you know, this family kind of going deep into the quote unquote heartland of America and yet still trying to maintain a sense of identity, even though they weren't sure whether or not that would be a financially beneficial to them, whether or not their marriage can survive that move, whether or not there is a market out there for Korean fruits and vegetables as like this uh, Korean immigrant population in America explodes at that time. And, you know, there's questions about religion. There are these sort of deep kind of questions about, you know, uh, the human being's relationship to the land that they live on. 
And I just thought it was gorgeous in that sense. So it's it's so fascinating. You go to a movie and you think you're going to see this sort of very, you know, process-based almost story about uh, a family and, you know, this snapshot of their lives. And it winds up feeling almost biblical at times, quite frankly, you know, in terms of its sweep, in terms of of the themes it's encompassing. And then, you know, you go see something like Mare, you see something like Falcon, and even though mm-hmm. it's got a little bit more genre kind of shine to it you know that they those those stories can tell you something about yourself as well yeah i think the comparison that i would make with with falcon and winter soldier which we'll we'll get to in more depth later is obviously there are a lot of people responding in very uh i think significant and moving ways to seeing uh a black man become captain america or take on the mantle or wrestle with what it would mean or even seeing on a more meta level seeing a major corporation like marvel and disney reckon with the iconography of having someone be the face of America right. and even, even in a fictional universe and what that could mean. And, and we've talked uh, repeatedly and we'll continue to talk about how uh, thrilling this moment can be for storytelling simply by letting other people fill the frame, letting other people take on the mantles, whether they are super heroic fictional mantles or otherwise. And the thing that I found so, well, there were many things because just the artistry on a base level is exceptional. But one of the things I found really compelling about Minari was uh, this is purely an American story. I mean, this is there. Mm-hmm. There is nothing particularly new about the contours of this story. But at least I have never seen this story told th- through a family of Korean immigrants. No, I mean uh, it's essentially. I mean, like, it has a lot in common with Days of Heaven. You mentioned Malik, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's. I thought it had a lot of those same those same themes. And and similarly, when you talk about Stephen Yun as an actor, I just find him. Th- thrilling and electric and it's exciting it's just frankly just as someone who who you know i guess people might push back on on it if i say i'm someone who likes to watch things but i promise generally i do to see an actor like that step up into these roles you know and when i say an actor like that i i don't just mean a korean american actor who rarely in past generations would have gotten the chance to lead a movie like this he's a pretty unique and compelling performer and as someone who watched the opening seasons of walking dead under slight duress, I enjoyed him, but mm-hmm. I can't say I found him to be. I mean, I, I, he didn't raise my overall enjoyment of the show particularly, and no, no one really did. And then you see him in Burning, uh, the great movie from two years ago, and you see him in this, and you're like, he he's really got something. I mean, he's he's a leading man with a with this depth of sensitivity, but also a little something crackling under the surface. I mean, I just I'm very excited for the next twenty, thirty years of his career too. I'll also say this about him. Authentic smoker. And I appreciate it and I salute him. <laughs> There's two things I hate. Bad basketball and yeah. bad smoking. And he really smokes well in Minari. I, I really appreciated it. Also, can we shout out Will Patton is in yeah. this movie. Yeah. And Will Patton is an actor who, if you've seen movies in the last 25 years, you'll be like, okay, it's that guy. And I mean that with respect because anyone who can carve out a career in Hollywood, God bless him, right? Like it is really right. hard. But he's the he was the the blonde guy who was also there in Armageddon, right? And in movies like he's played villains. He's he's just been around. Hadn't seen him, hadn't thought about him in a while. And he shows up in this movie completely inhabiting a character part, right? In a way that was kind of fun and exciting. And like the whole movie, ultimately kind and respectful in a way that I really uh, admired and appreciated. So the whole thing, check out the movie for sure. I generally don't recommend this before you see the movie, but I don't think it hurts that much if you do. 
Lee Isaac Chung has done a bunch of interviews that I think are really worth reading because it's also pretty amazing that this is a guy, he's our age, and has had one or two other careers and was basically ready in making movies and making different types of movies and was on the precipice of quitting. He was done. He mm. accepted a teaching job, figuring like he better be productive with his life now that he has a young family. And then he was just like, I'll just, I'll just leave one more out there. I'll write yeah. one more script. And now here we go. Yeah, wonderful movie. And I'm actually, strangely, I don't know that I have a ton of um, passion for uh, a lot of the films you know, nominated this year. Although mm-hmm. Minari and Nomadland both I, I loved. And we, we also talked a lot about how much we like Judas and the Black Messiah. Mm-hmm. But I'm very curious to watch the Oscars this year for, because of the Soderbergh part and because they're shooting it at Union Station. And that sounds like mm-hmm. they're going to actually maybe because they had a little bit of time to think about it, or maybe because Soderbergh is so deeply involved in the return to movie sets and, and figuring out some of the protocols involved there. You know, the way that they've, the, the stuff that I've been reading about what, how they're going to approach this and how they're basically, you know, going into this ceremony, shooting it like a movie almost in terms of the, the angles that they're going to be using, the cameras they're going to be using, the framing. I'm really kind of fascinated to check it out on, on Sunday night. I am also really eager to see the show and, it's the Soderbergh part about it for me, because regardless of whether you've seen, liked, loved, whatever, the nominated movies this year, I struggle to think of a time when the show that is about movies, that exists to celebrate and award movies, was being masterminded by someone who deeply, deeply loves movies. And that's not to, to short shrift people who have produced the show before, because as we've often said and we've covered these things, the Oscars telecast is a TV show, right? Mm-hmm. And is often constructed that way. But this is a, a strange year, like like no other, hopefully. And they obviously took a big swing. And Soderbergh has made TV and TV that we love. And judging by his yearly media diets, he watches a great deal of TV, so he knows what he's talking about. But he also just loves movies and just comes at this stuff from, at least to our, our minds, the right way. Like, I saw something trending recently about just how much he values in addition to making great movies, that he always spends time when he speaks to students about um, treating people correctly and treating people kindly on mm-hmm. sets and and you know not abusing your power. And just someone at the... I, I'm really curious to see how his sensibilities, which are very much aligned with ours, but I also think are just generally good values for art and life, filter into the ceremony. Yeah, me too. Me too. Can I ask you one thing that will get us to Mayor of Easttown? Of course. Coming from Minari? Yeah. This is not a spoiler, but the family in Minari, uh, the kids drink a lot of Mountain Dew. They call and it the, mountain, the movie, mountain Water, Fresh Mountain well, they, Water. Yeah. Well, I think they call it, they, they tell the, they translate it that way to their recently arrived grandmother, I think, in order to get her to be fine with it. Not that sure. she strikes me as someone who is She seems really pretty, pretty into Mountain checking Dew. Checking their yeah. calories. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's also set in the 80s, the movie, uh, when I think people were generally more lax about sugar sodas and, and children. Um, but that's what I wanted to check in with you about, Chris, because... I am definitely, like, I grew up in that era, that giant bottle of soda in the refrigerator. That's that's something that I was familiar with. Uh, similarly, like, when Mare goes to her friend's house and, like, perfectly in f- frame, which is to say a little bit like a skew in the back of the frame that's just a a, a well-worn already box of Cocoa Puffs open. Uh-huh. And I was curious, Chris, growing up, were you a big bottle of soda family? Like, what was the soda policy in your household growing up as a, as a kid, in, in that area, roughly the area of Maravistown, but in the era of Minari. So I uh, grew up in a no-soda house, mm-hmm. uh, so it was not around. I think that my mom drank Diet 
caffeine-free Coke, but like out of little cans. What's the point at that point? And it just never... I think I tried it. I, I would have a Coke every once in a while, but it was ne- it never tasted as good as like cranberry juice to me. So it was one of those things that I think that if you learn it, it's like swimming. It's like it helps to learn it early. You know, <laughs> so I you love the way you, you pivoted this question of which you had no personal engagement to something that you're really good at. No, it's not about swimming. that. It's more about this idea that like every house had different rules and regulations. You know what yes. I mean? So like while I did not drink soda, your boy took down more bags of Chewy Chips Ahoy than any, like, still living American should. You know what I mean? Like, there is no reason why I am still here podcasting today, given the amount of Chewy Chips Ahoy I ate as a child. Oh, I mean, I, I came from a house where, you know how, like, in Downton Abbey, before they sit down to dinner, they they pass out those tiny little snifter glasses with, like, a little bit of brandy in them? Yeah. So imagine before <laughs> dinner that, except a bag of her sour cream and onion potato chips. Like that's, that's just, like just a palate cleanser <laughs> in the drawing room. You know what I mean? Like pre-dinner, let's have that. So yeah. what what was the policy in your household vis-a-vis sugar cereals? Uh, I was allowed to have it as like a treat once in a while. So I had golden grams for that. I was allowed sugar cereal on my birthday. I could pick out a box of sugar cereal. But the soda thing, and this is obviously something I've been wrestling with as I parented completely the opposite direction. But you still bang Not- out some sodas though. Yeah, well, I, I I like a like I like a. Can we, do you still care if I give ads? I, I still like like a Coke Zero. I will. No, this I will. is a testimonial. It's not an ad. Okay, <laughs> but as a child, and I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, how it relates to not just parenting, but perhaps the structure of my body's central nervous system. I drank so much Coke as a child, <laughs> beginning at a very early age, and it's not just that I loved the delicious taste of what became Coca Cola Classic. Yeah cold from the fridge over ice. It's that I remember constantly as an only child, like being out in the world with my parents or like, you know, doing errands or even going out to a restaurant or even when we went on vacation, my parents would be like, oh, somebody's cranky and or tired. Get him a Coke. (laughs) My mother was like, like, uh, uh, what's his name? The the Billy, what the coach at Indiana that I never remember that I'm always trying to remember. But he's always, I always call him Billy Knight. I was Bobby Knight. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just like, like slap him on the butt and get him back out there. <laughs> That's right. That's not great. Yeah. Um, no, I, I definitely like it. And, you know, I used to kind of like, there was a couple of kids I knew growing up who were like, my mom lets me have an apple for dessert. And I was like, "That's that sucks to be you, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we were all sugared out. So it made us very agitated and mean. Let's talk about Mare. Yes. So we've been anticipating this show for a couple of weeks. Um, I guess I can give people some broad broad strokes if they would like, mm-hmm. so we can talk a little bit about this. So it's written by uh, a guy named Brad Inglesby, who is from a town called Berwyn, which is very much like Easttown uh, in that sort of Chester County area in Philly. And you know he went to Archbishop Carroll in Villanova. He's like a local Philadelphia guy. But the reason why I'm mentioning him so much is because he also wrote uh, a movie called Out of the Furnace, which Scott Cooper directed starring um, Christian... Bale and I think Casey Affleck. And then he also wrote a movie called The Way Back, which was the film that came out a little while back uh, with Ben Affleck as a kind of alcoholic, ex-alcoholic basketball coach um, who is trying to struggle, struggling to put his life back together. So I I mentioned this. uh, He's struggling to put his life back together at this small kind of Catholic prep school. 
And so I, I, the reason I mention all this is this is a guy who is like obviously working in a, in a Mayu. Like he has like a kind of story he is interested in telling. And I think he tells it very well. And I think we're seeing that in Mare. You know, it's, it's not often that something like as big as, as a HBO miniseries with Kate Winslet mm-hmm. is set in such a specific place like this that maybe a lot of people don't even know exists, don't even know what kind of issues are facing this kind of town. And so it, it's just such a thrill off jump to feel like you are in a real place with real mm-hmm. people. And so this is a base, you know, the story is about Kate Winslet plays a woman named Mare Sheehan. She is a police detective who used to be a uh, high school basketball star when she was younger and is responsible for one of like the great sporting moments of this, this town, East Town's sports history. And now she's a detective. When we meet her, she is sort of begrudgingly going through her life. She's got an ex-husband who lives, we find out like basically next door to her. Um, She lives with her mom. She's got a teenage daughter. She's also taking care of her grandchild. And uh, we basically get a day in the night of the life of Mare and another young woman named Erin McMenamin. So we basically, those are the two POV characters. We more or less go through Mare's day as a cop and into her evening where she is supposed to be celebrated for her past achievements in sports, but it winds up kind of being a drunken mess. And then this woman, Erin, who is like a young mother who is separated from the father of her child, lives with her dad. It's kind of having a, a rough time of it, but seems she's like a high she, schooler. She's a high schooler. But yeah, right. She's a high schooler and she is getting ready to go out on a date with a guy that she met online. And so she's really excited. So that's like, the, that's basically the snapshot that we get. And, you know, obviously if anybody's watched the show and if you haven't, you should stop listening. Now the episode ends with Aaron McMenamin's murder. And, there are like recognizable feels to the show. Like you, if you've seen Broadchurch, it kind of feels like, you know, a little bit more of, um, of, of, like I know that they tried to remake Broadchurch here, but like I, I think it has certain elements of shows that we've seen before. But I don't know that we've ever seen a show set in this kind of place. Um, I don't know that we've ever seen a show that kind of feels so deeply rooted in a, in a community like this, uh, about, about, like on this level. Mm-hmm. And most of all, I just think I'd love to talk to you a little bit about how this show does such an incredible job of communicating information through behavior and mm-hmm. experience rather than exposition and kind of hitting you over the head with the headlines of the day. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you about how what a good job it does and also just how great the show is from jump. Um I did want to say when you were talking about Brad Inglesby, I, don't, I hope longtime listeners of the podcast know that Villanova, the Villanova <laughs> Diner, was the site of the first place we ever broke bread or specifically right. grilled cheeses when we That's met right. in the summer of 1996. So clearly our DNA is, is built into the show on some level as well. One of the things that I'm grateful for here is, you know, people, listeners know we had Kate Winslet on the podcast. Um, we recorded that about a month ago. And so we had watched the first th- three weeks ago. So we had seen the first episode then mm-hmm. and loved it. And then that allowed me to take some time away from it and then watch it again and, and you know, rarely get a chance to watch things for a second time. And liked it even more the second time because the first time I watched it, what I was responding to so strongly was what you were talking about, Chris, was the sense of place. The key scene for me is the mayor's first scene at home with yeah. the canned cheese and the husband, ex-husband coming over to 
Poirot the Oregano, and the incredible cousin who's a priest who's giving off peak Eric Stoltz and kicking and screaming vibes <laughs> while he's just making <laughs> making cocktails and cracking yeah, he's like wise. Making Manhattans? What is he making? It's phenomenal. Yeah. Jean Smart as her mom at the table and all the crosstalk and all the stairs and all the accumulated history, both yes. in the way they speak to each other and also just the way the house feels when the ex-husband goes. Yeah, the you way forgot, that- She says, you forgot your oregano. And yeah. then he opens the cabinet because he knows where it is and he knows where to look for it. It is deeply rooted in real people who care about real things. And you'd think that that would make something feel heavier, but in fact, it, it, it allows it to soar because you invest in that. And I think that the trick with any kind of mystery show or cop show or procedural show is, you know, people overrate and place too much importance on the mystery or the mysteries themselves. There aren't that many permutations of murder mysteries. There just aren't. What people fall in love with are the characters in the world. And then those are the ways to sort of, then the mystery sort of propels them forward and puts them into situations where the characters can develop or surprise you in, in, in even better ways. So I was on board just from the vibe of, of, it, of watching it once. Watching it the second time, I was really impressed with Brad Inglesby's chops because when you watch it the second time, you notice a little more the way the exposition is doled out um, and the way certain things are foreshadowed or, 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 or set up. But that's not a bad thing. I really admired it. I mean, if, if you watch the opening sequence, as you all hopefully did, but even if you watch it again, just from Mare's waking up to going to the house where there's the, the peeper to the way they talk about her, to the way, you know, little lines are dropped in. Like, she's like, what I do is the really bad stuff. I don't take calls like this. And the yeah. woman's like, you should get a new job. Yeah. Um, That's where she says overdoses and burglaries. Overdoses and burglaries, which is the all title for the show. I believe actually uh, that's how, if you're, if you have, if you're a Comcast subscriber in the greater Delco area, the show is called overdoses and burglaries. They've retitled it just for the region. Yeah. It, 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 it's so far anyway, it's that rare mix of really smart, compelling structure and deep specificity and sense of place. And, the comparison I'd make, and I made it when we talked about it last week, is the, a BBC show you can watch on Netflix called Happy Valley. But the thing that I definitely don't agree with, that I think that if, if you're, I've seen some shorthand write-ups of the show or tweets about the show basically lumping it in with a sort of dark murder mystery that's become prevalent in the age of prestige TV. And I just think it's immediately elevated past that from the beginning because it is not just interested in the darkness of the crime. I mean, you watch the show Yes, it's awful what happens to this young woman, and the, that feeling of watching her descent is very uncomfortable. Like mm-hmm. it is, I, it, it definitely triggers some of the nervous responses or emotional responses that that dark shows that I think are dark for the sake of dark have triggered. But that's not what keeps you watching. You know, uh, it, it's really it's Kate Winslet's performance, but it's also that home. The yeah, characters I mean, in that home I mean, and, and what they're saying to each other and what they're doing. Look, a lot of a lot of shows that we have praised and a lot of shows that are in this vein are essentially built on you know the deaths of dead young girls you know like they they are kind of like Mm -hmm. they prey on that sort of um vulnerability that i think we we you know you might have to that and they like i think that a lot of these shows pay short shrift to the victims now I could be proven wrong, we you know whatever, but like I felt like that they did a good job in the first episode giving Aaron a life before she died. And yes. I think that's important. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to do it, explain to me like what Aaron was living for and what she was scared of and what she was 
happy about or what she was sad about and what were the things that she wanted to do with her life and what didn't work out for her in her life. Like, give me a sense of that so that if, God forbid, something happens to this character, like, I actually have a sense of what was lost here. You know what I mean? Rather than just exploiting the natural feeling of, like, and I think we've talked about this in the past when we've talked about, like, Broadchurch and the killing and stuff like that where it just immediately turns into the bad news relay. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of like going to people's houses and explaining to them what happened. And then they fall down on the floor and start crying. And, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of tropes that are, are pretty manipulative in this. But so far, I haven't felt that way with Mare. It, it also helps that um, the part of Aaron is played by uh, Kaylee Spanny, who people might remember uh, as the young boy coder in Devs, putting together pretty impressive CV at a young age and is such a compelling presence. And I think her performance is outstanding, but also her her casting speaks to the priorities of the entire production. And partly, yeah, I mean, the HBO machine, they know how to do this. They know how to put you in touch with the right people. They know how to shoot on location. I mean, it's it's the best of the best. But um, have to give credit to Brad Inglesby and Craig Zobel, the director, mm-hmm. and Kate Winslet, who's executive producer as well, for really filling out the screen with phenomenal performers. It's not just... Um, that top level. It's not just Kate Winslet and Gene Smart, and we'll get to Guy Pearce in a minute. Uh, Julian Nicholson, who's always, always like the best six man off the bench in so many phenomenal productions. But um, like Neil Huff, who plays this priest, who's a theater actor, yeah. uh, is fantastic. The other women on the team all just knock it out of the park in their small scenes. I think Evan Peters joins the show later yeah, the in the run, episode. which I'm kind of excited to see. Mm-hmm. It's pretty consistent world building in a way that's exciting. Can we, we talk a little talk bit? About, I just want to talk a little bit about, about that, that scene you're talking, you referred to though, the oregano mm-hmm. kind of moment, because mm-hmm. I, I thought that that did a really good job of that. That's like what I would say if somebody was like, why is this show good? I would say it's because of this scene, because like you mentioned, you know, like she's sitting there, uh, Kate Winslet's sitting there at the table. She's got both feet up on the table uh, with a, what it's like, like frozen potatoes, on her on her ankle, right? Yeah, frozen vegetables of some kind. Fro- frozen vegetables on her ankle because she's twisted her ankle when she was chasing after the limp is so funny. After Beth's addicted brother, and she's sitting there, and you can just already tell by the way that she interacts with everybody who's in that room what the history is between them. You know, like mm-hmm. her saying to her, like her mom, kind of snippily saying, "What happened to you?" Which it both it, it betrays like. I'm concerned, but I'm also annoyed that you're hurt, Mm -hmm. you know? And then when Kate Winslet finds out that Gene Smart is known that her ex-husband is engaged for three weeks and Gene Smart says, well, it's not, it wasn't my secret to share. Kate Winslet is like, yeah, it was. I'm your daughter. Like she's a little bit hurt, but she's also being a little bit difficult. You know, like it's like you, you don't need to say out loud exactly what this character is thinking, what their relationship is to one another. She doesn't walk in and say, oh, it's, it's my cousin, the priest, who happens to be here d- making his daily like Manhattan for my mother who drinks a little bit and fell down. Like It's like everything is like just kind of there for you to take. Now, like you said, watching it two times, maybe it kind of like, I also watched the first mm-hmm. episode a second time. Maybe it kind of settles in a little bit more. But I really did find that that scene was about as good as you can write a family scene in TV. And one of the ways reasons I loved it so much was there are so many shots that Zobel had there where three or four actors are in the shot and you're essentially getting people reacting to another line reading in real time in front of your eyes. It's not all cut to pieces. It's not all close ups. And 
it, a lot of it wound up being instead of just acting with your face, Kate Winslet's acting with her ankle. You know, she's acting yeah. with her her posture rather than just being sort of like everything is communicated through my eyes or whatever. Well, think about it this way. I mean, you want to make a show that's about a community, not necessarily close-knit by choice, but overlapping, jammed up together. Everybody knows each other. So you shoot it like it's a community. So to your point, there are a lot of uh, shots with multiple characters in the frame, but also it is a series of essentially group scenes laid on top of each other. Think about when Merrick goes to visit Julian Nicholson's family and she comes in the house and she speaks to her son first and she speaks to her daughter. Then her husband comes in and the husband's going to the ex-husband's party and we begin to realize they're just layers upon layers, but it's, it's not the kind of thing where you're grateful for everyone knowing your business. There's a level of exasperation to it as well. And that continues where the same group of people keep showing up again and again. And, Yes, is it convenient for the sake of a murder mystery drama that one of the members of the starting five basketball team that won the championship 25 years is ago also, is also the mother yeah. of a missing young girl who Mayor has failed to locate or at least you know, get any leads on in the years since it happened? Right. Sure. But also, we have been given everything we need to understand that that's very likely in a place like this. And- I didn't even check the timestamp of when that scene comes when they're all the the, the former Lady Hawks are about it's to be about introduced onto in the court. It's about because she still goes out and puts up the posters and then she goes, you know, she goes to Guy Pierce's house and everything. But still, so two-thirds in, we're, that's gener- That's what, like the 30, 35-minute mark yeah. of a show like this. And we're, at least in my experience watching it, when Kate Winslet, when Mare cannot stop herself, can't, maybe it's the rolling rock, maybe it's her own resentment. She cannot stop needling this woman who's not only mourning her daughter, probably, but also suffering from cancer. I love the scene because, of course, she can't help herself. We already know, you yeah. know, and I feel like that's the kind of story building shorthand that is pretty impressive and, and not all that common. We have to talk, speaking of things that are common, though, we have to talk about how all writers feel at some point in their life that it is necessary to make a writer character. We got to talk about Guy Pierce, <laughs> National Book Award winner. Yeah. Showing up in East Town, just throwing lame pickup lines and still picking up Miss Lady Hawk herself on night one. So let me ask you this. We're going to find out, obviously, I, I have no insight, but we will eventually find out, I'm sure, more about Guy Pierce's character. But if you've won the National Book Award, mm-hmm. do you have to have also have robbed a bank to wind up teaching in East Town? <laughs> well,. No, I mean, I do think... Are there a lot of National Book Award winners who have then like just kind of fallen off the map? I don't want to break it to you, to be the one to break it to you, Chris, but at least in my understanding of it, uh, fiction writing isn't the most consistently lucrative field. (laughs) Um, I mean, I hate to tell you this. I hate to be the one, because I know you had a whole third act planned. But yeah, I believe it. Whether he needed to be a National Book Award winner or he could just be a kicking around novelist who just didn't want to give up on the dream, you know, mm-hmm. that probably feels a little more realistic to me because there are plenty of people who, <laughs> some half of this podcast included, who wrote a book in their younger days and were like, nope, <laughs> that's fine. I'm good. Yeah. Um, scratch that one off the bucket list. Now I'm going to go drink some beers and pick up cops. I leave like, it to you, Philip Roth. <laughs> seriously, like I've said all I have to say. You'll be fine without me, literature. Um, you know, I I think all that's plausible. I think what's interesting and might be jarring for some viewers is the intentional uh, culture clash because all of these actors, whether they are true to the region or they're just talented thespians like Kate Winslet, 
are giving their all, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, to know the difference between between Yingling and Rolling Rock. And then Guy Pierce has flown in from a completely different universe. Yeah, from the set um, of Without and, Remorse. Yeah. Yeah. So it it's a choice, you know, and one that I hope will pay pay plot dividends. Um, it's fun, I guess, that one of the first things they say to each other is like, do you have any bodies buried under your porch? And he's like, not yet. So, you know, it's fun. But that that was definitely, they spent all this time building this world and then kind of crack it a little bit by having a character who seems, who definitely seems not just from another world, but from a different uh, filmed entertainment. And I'm curious where that goes. Yeah, for sure. Um, any other notes do you have uh, on this first episode? I have one that I would like to talk to you a little bit about, which is that, so Siobhan, the, um, you know, teenage daughter, Mare's teenage daughter, this as well. is um, the live entertainment for her father's, you know, second, her, his engagement party. And uh, as I noted from our buddy Sam Donsky, mentioned this on Twitter, and I, I looked this into this. This is where I wanted to talk about, too. Is uh, her band plays a song by a Philadelphia band called Manic and Pussy. And th- th- that great band. Do you think, and Sam, Sam asked this question, do you <laughs> think that this band in Mayor of Easttown is supposed to be Manic and Pussy? Or do you think that they are just really into other Philadelphia bands and are covering a Philadelphia band, thereby Manic and Pussy exists in the world of Mayor of Easttown? And if so, mm-hmm. what else from Philadelphia is in this version of reality that we are seeing in Mayor of Easttown. I'm going to say this to you once, Chris. Beyond this door lies madness. This is a dangerous, <laughs> dangerous conversation. Let me also say that uh, I enjoyed Sam Donsky's tweets very much, as I always do. Mannequin Pussy is a phenomenal band. Uh-huh. I've been listening to them a lot. To take this two or three steps further, Mannequin Pussy was contacted, can this band within the show play your songs? Mm-hmm. They said, how great, what an honor, we'd love it. But they were on tour. And so they weren't around to like teach the actors how to play the songs or how to perform them or like, you know, give rock star tips or whatever. So they called in backup. The lead singer, Missy, the lead singer of Mannequin Pussy, called her good friend, Michelle Zahner, who performs his Japanese breakfast, to go to set and give some pointers. Are you Michelle kidding Zahner, me? Michelle Zahner, who records his Japanese breakfast, also wrote a memoir called Crying in H Mart, which she will be on the watch pod next week to promote. <laughs> So does the watch pod exist in this world? If Michelle Zahner is teaching actors, we don't exist. We've just negated ourselves from reality because we are on the side of, we're on the production side now. We're right. not in the real side. So I don't even know how to answer this. I, I think, no, let me rephrase. I know we are overthinking this. I believe that the young people in the show are not covering a beloved band, they are just preternaturally talented and have somehow incepted right. Uh, the, the first time good I rock saw music of the, people who are 10 years older than them. The first time I watched this episode, I didn't, you know, there's no captions or whatever on the screener, so you don't see, like, band plays Mannequin Pussies, whatever the song is called, which is what it right. says on HBO Max. So I went through it and I was like, that might be the best fictional song I've ever heard. Like, (laughs) like since that thing you do, I have not heard a song this kind of like polished. And I was like, these kids need to get the fuck out of East town because like, as soon as live venues open up, like it's, it's like a one way ticket to Coachella for these kids. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if the Kyber pass still exists or Nick's roast beef is still booking shows upstairs, but I feel like there's a path. You know what I mean? There's a path for them. I also just think that maybe, again, I'll just say, no, I know we're overthinking it. 
why has everybody been wasting time uh, recording new songs for things? If you could just borrow an existing but not yet famous band, this seems really smart to me. Like, then the songs will be good, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. This is fine. Anyway, we're very excited about this show. I guess we can probably, like, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about it for the next couple of Mondays, I would imagine. So it's a six-episode run. Yeah, I, I, I think it was a beautiful, beautiful first episode, and I can't wait to, to keep talking about it with you. Why don't we take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll do Falcon Winter Soldier. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app, and you're good to go. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Just because you wrestle alligators for a living doesn't mean you should have the skin of one. Say goodbye to dry and cracked skin with Old Spice Super Hydration Body Wash with vitamin B3. Made for 24-7 renewing moisturization with daily use. With scents of vanilla and shea, people will think you've taken up candle making as one of your hobbies. And there is nothing wrong with that. Old Spice Super Hydration Body Wash. Shop Old Spice now. All right, uh, we're back. So, Andy, episode five, the penultimate episode of Falcon and Winter Soldier. I thought it was the best of times and the worst of times for this show this time. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think that there were some things in the episode that I never thought I'd see in a Marvel anything, movie, show, whatever. Is that um, a montage about boat repair? <laughs> um, no, it was... It was some of the issues and feelings being discussed by by Sam and Isaiah, by by um, just sort of like the idea of a Black American being Captain America, what that means, what uh, sacrifices um, of past generations mean to, to today's generation. I just was like, 
holy shit, they're really having this conversation. This is happening on Disney Plus. Like, mm-hmm. this is this is pretty amazing. And then there were parts of the episode that I found completely incoherent, namely, um, I, honestly, the Carly stuff. So what would you like to talk about first, the, the good or the bad? I think always the good. I want to talk about the good first. And I think that, you know, maybe we'll get a chance to, to, to speak to him about this directly, but what's, what I felt in this episode at its best was the, the, the passion and point of view of its creator, uh, which is really what we generally look for. I mean, that's like the first proof of life thing we look for in the shows that we choose to cover or that we really respond to, I think, is is someone communicate, is someone, a group of people, whomever is the creative force behind something, is there a point of view and is there something that they're passionate about that they're using the show to communicate? And I think that the scenes that you mentioned, particularly the Sam and Isaiah scene, um, but also just, you know, Sam's back half of the episode journey in general mm-hmm. was powerful and emotionally resonant and also cleared out space to the show cleared space for those thoughts and character beats to be fully expressed, which I really appreciated and respected. And I'm grateful for Malcolm Spellman for doing that and being the voice behind a show like this on such a big platform, respect Marvel and Disney for letting him do it. I think as you, I mean, I know I, I want to talk more about the good, but I think that we're both feeling the same thing, which is that you can only clear so much space in a tightly wound piece of machinery like this. And all the other grinding gears bits did kind of, I don't know if they got in the way, but they're there too, you know? And it's tough to just sort of dissect this one episode when you have to your point, the very best of what it can be and also the parts that we're just frankly not that into. Yeah, I mean, I thought that um, what happens, the the arc of Sam's character and him arriving at the point where obviously I think he feels like he can hold the shield and whatever dope shit. He can't just hold it. Yeah, we're gonna can, get into this. Yeah. Jeez Louise. How does he still have fingers? They they put the like the Rocky montage in there and that was really cool. But like the you know, the the fact that you get to feel like everything that happens with this character isn't earned in so much as he's earned the right to have the shield, but is earned in terms of like we have gone through his resistance to this idea and his later his acceptance of this idea on his own terms. And that's juxtaposed really nicely with him seeing, I think both what happened to Isaiah and talking with him more about it. And also what can happen when this goes really wrong in the case of John Walker having the shield, you know, it's like if, Mm -hmm. if this thing is going to exist, if this mantle is going to exist, it's important that it's in the right hands and not in the hands of um, this roided out, you know, super soldier who, you know, even though we could get into, like, what he did or didn't do in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Because I think Wyatt Russell's still doing a really good job. Um, I thought that was great. I thought the Bucky stuff generally was, like, really, really effective. Like, his friendship. I think the fact that these guys are not pals, you know what I mean? I think that they did a nice job mm-hmm. sort of circumventing some of the cliches of, like, buddy cop stuff or, like, when opposites attract, but they're thrown together by the work. Like these guys are essentially learning how to be friends. And it's, it's really cool to see that happen over the course of five, six hours or however, you know, we've had about five hours of of TV so far. We'll have a finale. You know, I thought that all that stuff was really effective. Um, 
Look, there was a video that I saw, and I think you know I've shared it. It's been shared. It's it's very popular, but it was I think um, New Rockstars did it, if I remember correctly. It's on YouTube. New Rockstars does a lot of video essays and a lot of reaction videos to a lot of Marvel stuff, and they essentially laid out the sort of likelihood that Falcon and Winter Soldier was supposed to be about a virus. Uh, you know that that was the an original plot line, or one of the plots in the show was supposed to be about a virus. Whether or not it's something that Carly is like, you know spreading or something like that but a virus gets out and there's some mentions in the first episode of you know she's got vaccines or something like that like and there there is like some trace remnants of this plot and they kind of go through all the instances throughout the season where it's pretty obvious that there's like been some extensive ADR like post-production audio recording to to like stitch together plot points um, a lot of the scenes where Sharon is talking on the phone and seems to like move the plot along five mm-hmm. steps by giving them a new mission or giving them a huge information dump so they find out where they need to be next is kind of like surgery to repair what happens when you remove a major section of the story. And I got to admit, after watching that, I, I, I feel very strange being like, I watched this YouTube video and my mind has been completely changed. Yeah, that's never, historically, that's never been a, a, a but bad thing. I have to admit that watching it actually made me take a breath and be like, oh, maybe that's why this feels a little bit weird in places. Is that once you kind of see all the examples of, here's a scene where Sharon's talking, but she is off screen and is now setting up like the rest of the episode with what she is telling these guys. You realize that they probably had to do a lot of surgery on this thing because of COVID shutdowns, because of rewrites for, you know, if they had to take a virus plot out of this show and replace it with something else with the Flag Smashers, it makes a lot of sense why it doesn't make any sense. And I thought towards the end, when, you know, this sort of like the GRC and the Flag Smashers plot kind of comes to a head, with them, I guess, having a hostage situation or taking over the UN or whatever they're doing at the end of the show. And it's in New York, even though they're in Eastern Europe and they're international criminals. So I don't understand whether or not they could really move freely through through the world. I think just they use like, jet. Yeah, they're know? like, what the hell is happening? You know what I mean? And, and also, like, what what do the what do they want? Like, I it's there's some basic, like, I don't know what certain characters want here some of that is like we're going to keep you in the dark because there might be a big reveal and some of it is we're keeping you in the dark because if you knew it wouldn't make any sense yeah let me i wanted to respond to that video too because i checked it out and i think that you know it's not backed up by any confirmation of anything but there are a lot of very compelling points made not just that there's talk about vaccines that what everything carly's doing makes no sense that the actress who plays Donia Madani, who I still don't understand what she was supposed to be, is played by a fairly well-regarded and successful actress who is one of the main characters. I think she's a regular cast on she Perry, was in Mason. Perry Mason. Yeah, uh, she's and great. And is Perry just Mason. is just a corpse on the show, suggesting that there was other things that she was going to be doing, and also that it's not just that Disney and Marvel wanted to avoid a virus slash vaccine plotline post COVID. It's that within the framework of the show, if this virus was designed and coming from an Asian country, even a fictional one like Madripoor, that is bad on any number of levels for you know for actual consequences in the real world, in terms of how people think about uh, COVID, but also for Disney's very extensive business relationships yes. across the world. Yes. So all of that seems legitimate. And the fact that the show, particularly that plot line, is borderline incomprehensible probably bears it out. 
Let me stand up, though, for the fact that ADR and doing these kinds of reworkings and plot things on TV are not just commonplace. They are totally necessary. Yeah. Um, I don't want to create a generation of TV viewers that notices when lines are delivered off camera because, guys, it's the only trick we've got left often. <laughs> the, the trickery, I mean, the trickery that I had to do on one season of a not highly anticipated show, I can only imagine what they have to get up to in these shows that are not sure. only have a tons of eyes on them, but literally tons of eyes on them before they're released because they're so important to the larger structure of things. Um yeah, I mean, we shot scenes, entire scenes and locations that were cut and then just, not just erased because we didn't put them in the show, but then we put different words in people's mouths and Rosario comes back in and says, good thing we got out of there and then it's never spoken of again. And sure. either you get away with it or you don't. Not just those, not just off-camera stuff, but some of the Sharon stuff the guy points out too, which is where you have maybe some coverage uh, of a character in, from a distance and you can just put different words because you're not really tracking the lips. Yeah, right. Guys, down this road also leads to madness, but if you're ever watching an over-the-shoulder two-shot and look at the character who's not speaking, nine times out of ten, you will see that character do, do, be doing something that is not reacting to what oh, the other I mean, person this, is saying. On, like, one of my favorite scenes in Heat features this. Like, yes. one, one of my favorite scenes in Heat, there is a shot, I think, over Pacino's shoulder... And Al Pacino is like either I can't remember he's like wearing sunglasses and then the next shot that's over Ricky Martin's shoulder he's mm-hmm. not wearing sunglasses and like he's also like talking in one thing but he's but it's there's no audio like this happens in everything like I'm not saying that this is a yeah. Marvel's problem or a Falcon and Winter Soldier problem I am saying that it's pretty obvious that they had to rearrange the sort of chess pieces of this show doing this kind of material. Doing this kind yeah, of work. Yeah, and so it, I think no matter what, the best version of the show was going to be, or the best aspect of the show was going to be what we were talking about at the top, which is Sam Wilson's journey from the end of Endgame into taking up the mantle and what that means on any number of levels. And some of those levels, ones we did not expect to see in a Marvel property. The other stuff, the action stuff, the Flag Smashers stuff, you know, we probably always would have had some some questions about. This didn't help whatever was going on behind the scenes clearly, clearly didn't help. But while we're talking about the post-production stuff, I do want to highlight two other unsung departments that have really helped Marvel so much and particularly helped them, I think, even in this in this show, which is, uh, and, and, and the reason I'm bringing it up is not just because I'm, I'm impressed by it and I notice it often when watching Marvel properties, but um, there are still moments for me, you know, even over 10 years into this stuff, where you see the Falcon and Bucky Barnes and U.S. agent, sorry, that's what John Walker becomes in the comics, standing in a warehouse with all their gear and costumes. And I'm like, I just can't believe we're buying this. Mm-hmm. And we are. But like, as someone who grew up with this stuff, it still kind of blows my mind, especially when you remember, and if anyone out there hasn't seen this, you could just Google it. But like, Google David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury. Google the Roger Corman Fantastic Four or the buried Captain America movie they made in the 90s. And you're like, this just looks ridiculous. And I think that, one of the main reasons why we're getting we're pulling they're pulling the stuff off is sound design. Sound design does not get a lot of plaudits or headlines only maybe when you notice something that's off. But one thing that I noticed repeatedly in this show is the sound of the shield. They have these sounds down. So when you're near the shield there's a certain kind of metallic heft and weight to it. It feels not just heavy, it feels yeah. important. They do the same thing with Thor's hammer, you know, or any of these sort of totemic items that make people heroes. And it makes such a difference. 
when you see Sam winging the sword or the, the shield around, uh, yes, my main concern is for his hands. I hope they were calloused for other reasons because I just can't imagine the blisters he's receiving, let alone the fact that he has fingers at all because it seems very heavy and difficult. But you feel the weight of what he's doing because he has something special. And that comes from the sound design. The second thing is you were talking about watching Bucky and Sam become learn to become friends. Part of that credit has to go with whoever, however many years ago, cast Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan. You know, I mean, just that you're playing with house money when you know you just have in your stable actors who can do this stuff. I mean, Sebastian Stan is never going to be, I don't think we're going to be talking about him the way we talk about like Philip Seymour Hoffman or, or even Stephen Young. We were talking about him at the beginning of this, you know, he's a, he's a, a, a working actor who has a very specific skill set that he's just really good at. And some things in those skill sets are just being fun to hang out with and watch. Yeah, but he's also this is this is an example of why the Marvel project is actually pretty fascinating to to watch take place, and especially now that we're in the second decade of it. You know, this guy's character has changed quite a bit (laughs) since he's from from the first Captain America movie through Winter Soldier, through Civil War, through Black Panther to this. We we've seen like quite a transition for this guy, and I don't know whether or not you would have necessarily banked on. Marvel being able to stick with this to hold their nerve to be like, we're going to tell a story over this time because obviously when they made the first Captain America movie, I don't think that they knew that they were going to have a streaming service that they were going to be dedicating hundreds of millions of dollars of production money to where they would be expanding the world of this cinematic universe Mm -hmm. on a smaller screen. They also didn't know that Sebastian Stan was going to be popular, that he would work out, that people would want to spend any time with him as a character, and that they could send him to all these sort of far-flung parts of this story and have him be different when he comes back is pretty mm-hmm. awesome. This is why I'm actually like pretty engaged with this entire project is because there aren't a lot of opportunities to do that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I want to just take a second because I mentioned it in passing last week and some people online were asking me about it. Uh I mentioned a really, well, to my mind, was a really good Winter Soldier comic story to, to get into or to check out on Marvel Unlimited or the graphic novels. There was a series that Marvel published in 2015, I think. It was called Bucky Barnes, The Winter Soldier by Alish Cott, or Cote, and Marco Rudy. Uh, you can get it on Marvel Unlimited. It's the coolest exploration of the character after Ed Brubaker introduced him in, in his you know pretty iconic run, Captain America. This series, again, it's called Bucky Barnes, The Winter Soldier. It puts him into, like, the weirdest parts of space and Mm -hmm. is a very, very mind-bending and trippy and cool series. Last thing we should talk about before we leave is Selena Meyer's entrance into the MCU. (laughs) So some backstory here. This seems like, so from what I can gather, this was supposed to be a surprise reveal in In the Black Widow movie. Yeah. And this was supposed to be her, I guess, either her second appearance although we don't actually know when they filmed this. So anyway, here she is. Julie Louis-Dreyfus is in the Marvel Universe now. And, you know, people. some people were asking online, like, what is the significance of this Countess character? You could go down the road of learning about the various iterations of Madame Hydra uh, since the 60s. I don't highly recommend it because I don't know how relevant it's going to be, but there have been characters called Madame Hydra who are related to Hydra, which has obviously had its run already in the Marvel Universe. The other guess that people are putting together is that this is the beginnings of them doing the Thunderbolts in the Marvel Universe. Should I do this? Should I explain Yeah, absolutely. This? Every so often, 
comics still got it, right? Like they can get you. And now it's like 20 years ago. So it wasn't even over 20 Th- years Thunderbolts ago. Thunderbolts so is like the dirty dozen, right? Like it's like the guys that we send when we, it's like the suicide squad of Marvel sort of. Sort of. But what what's noteworthy about it to me was that it was one of the few times that people got gotten. Like fans were truly shocked and surprised because it was an era not known for taking chances. And Kurt Busiek, who's a great, lover of Marvel lore and comic book history and whatever, he's launched this new series. And it didn't seem that implausible that Marvel would hire him to create a new team of superheroes. The reveal a couple issues in was that the leader of this band of superheroes was actually Zemo. And they were all villains who were Uh, now trying to reinvent themselves as heroes. Legitimately, they were trying to be heroes. And people were blown away. I mean, this was was like a we have to go back kind of level plot twist. You That's know, pretty for cool. Comic fans, and it was cool. And since then, it's the, the idea has come back, and the characters have you know they've done the things that comics have done. Clearly, they can't do this in the MCU because they can't surprise you with villains. But they could be, you know, placing a long bet on Daniel Bruhl and Zemo and this whole other corner, and potentially John Walker as well. People who need to, you know, uh, who who are seeking to be reformed or trying to. And the Julia Louis Dreyfus character would replace William Hurt, who presumably is getting too old for this shit or what well because because he's around too as thunderbolt yeah ross and so i it my feeling is that the hallmark of this era of marvel entertainment is like we're just gonna flood the zone we got a lot of options we could call a lot of audibles uh we're not sure what we're gonna do but i i do think the stuff of like oh well now we know who the big bad is for the next phase of marvel comics before it was josh brolin in space with you know the Grand Canyon in his chin, and now it's now it's Elaine Bennis in a power suit. <laughs> I think that's gonna know for me, dog. I think she seems to be having a good time, and she's amazing always, and that's fun. But I don't think this, the, this you don't is think she's new, new Thanos. Yeah, me neither. All right, so we have the finale of Falcon and Winter Soldier on uh, Friday, Thursday night, Friday morning. Uh, I really recommend people check out Charles and Van on the uh, the Ringerverse feed. That's a great show. And then Mal is doing her sort of uh, later in the week, Monday or Tuesday. She jumps in and has like a deeper conversation with theories and answers questions and, and goes really uh, into depth. And she had a great show last week with Musa Okwanga from Stadio about that. Uh, we'll be back on Friday morning, I guess, to talk about Top Chef and mm-hmm. some other stuff. So, Andy, until then. And we'll also have an interview. We'll have an interview on Friday. That's right. We uh, there's a, a film coming out on streaming on demand this week called We Broke Up. Charming, sort of anti-rom-com, starring your TV boyfriend and girlfriend, William Jackson Harper from The Good Place, and Aya Cash from You're the Worst and also The Boys. And Will and Aya came on the podcast to talk to me about it, and you'll hear that on Friday. Awesome. All right, man. Talk to you Friday. Great job. Great job. I'm going to go have a Coke. Hello, and welcome to the Watch Podcast. Fuck, I couldn't do it. <laughs> Use this. This is gold. No, wait. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.